chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked of the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Laura, thank you very much for reading. Um, I, I do wonder just, just how you feel on, on an evening like tonight, because um, here we are barraged with um, words from the warden. Um, that's pretty serious, isn't it? Um, and, and then you know, and then and then you're you're inflicted with a with a glossy, giving leaflet, um, and now a passage all about money. Um, you know, you could be you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, I just might just slide out during that next hymn um, and get away from this altogether. Um, if if you are here for the first time um, and you're thinking to yourself, I knew it, I knew that's what church was like. Maybe you've never been to church for for. Now you're back here again, and you're thinking, it's just, it's just what I always thought. It's just they're after your money, that's all it is, um, and uh, that's all they're really interested in. Well, um, it's true what Sarah said, that um, we do only talk about money about a couple of times a year, um, but you're probably not thinking that's true. Um, you're probably thinking this is there on it all the time. Mentally, I guess, at this point, sort of all of us are kind of reaching for our debit card. 
um, not in order to flourish it in extravagant generosity, but just to, to, to make sure we know where it is and it's safe and no one else can get at it. Because uh, money does that to us, doesn't it? We get a little bit twitchy as soon as we start to think about money. Um, particularly at a time like this with um, a, a bit of a, a cost of living crisis uh, running around. Um, and uh, that we might just give away our hard-earned cash just seems like a peculiar idea, whatever age we are. Um, money, money does things for us, doesn't it? Money promises us a sense of security. Um, I, I, I don't know about you, I, I, have, the, I, have, a, um, I have an easy capacity um, to, to anticipate all sorts of terrible things going wrong, and then I, and then I can just run down catastrophic sort of um, trajectories um, I know, imagining if, if this happens, then that happens, then pretty soon I'll be bankrupt, and then I'll probably be uh, out on the street, evicted. You know, I can imagine all of that uh, sort of unfolding at high speed if I let myself. Um, and, and money well, gives us a sense of security, keeps us safe, money, doesn't it? Uh, and money also promises us joy. You know, money's, the, money's what we can buy the treats with. We can buy the stuff that makes life fun. Uh, and without money, there'd be no leisure, no delight. Just be hard graft, trying to get enough to get by. And money promises us security. Money promises us joy. And along comes a giving Sunday, and it messes with that. So, g given how tricky it can be to, 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 to get under our skin, as it were, in relation to us and our relationship with money and wealth, it does come as a little bit of a surprise that in trying to get at us, trying to help us to think this through, Jesus chooses to tell a story about a dishonest swindler. I mean, it's odd, isn't it? But, but that's what he does. That's his tactic for getting us to think a little bit harder about money. So, so let, let's look again at this parable and see what Jesus is up to here. Um, just, just revisit uh, what it is, the story that Jesus tells. That there's this rich man, and he has a manager, kind of like a steward. Um, you, you might think of this person as something between a chief operating officer and a chief financial officer. You know, I mean, a really powerful person in the running of this rich man's estate. He's in control of everything. He decides how the rich man's resources are going to get invested. Um, he keeps the books, this manager. Um, he receives the dividends that come back in. This manager decides just about everything about the rich man's estate and wealth. But this rich man is underperforming, wasting his master's possessions, we're told. And so one day he is summoned to his master's office um, and he receives the, the distinctly bad news that he's going to lose his job, that he's getting his marching orders and his time as manager has come to an end. He has been given one remaining task, which is to, to present an account of his management presumably in order that it can all get passed on neat and tidy to whoever's going to succeed him uh, and take his job after him. 
Now, all of this, it's clear, throws the manager into something of a spin. He's terrified. He's a bit like me, um, capable of catastrophizing. And he's soon he's imagining how awful it's going to be. Verse 3, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I, I, I'm ruined. But in the midst of his terror, a plan comes to mind. Verse 4, I know, I know, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. A genius plan. He calls in all of his master's debtors. And he tells them to, to get out their IOUs, which show how much they owe the master. And then he says, let's edit the amounts. So, so how much you owe? What, 3,000 litres of olive oil? That's outrageous. Slice it in half. Let's call it 1,500, shall we? How about that? And you, what about you? 30 tonnes of wheat? That's a lot of wheat, isn't it? Just carve off six. We'll drop it down to 24. How's that go? And as you can imagine, the debtors are thrilled. Um, for them, uh, it can't believe their good fortune. It's as if Christmas has come early. Which, of course, is a funny thing, because no one had quite worked out that you were going to have Christmas at this point yet. They couldn't be happier with this extraordinarily generous, wonderful steward. And, and all of which means that when eventually the, the, the manager does get his P45 um, and he's out without a job, instead of being lonely and isolated, uh, the manager gets a lovely warm welcome from all of these new friends who are so thrilled at the generosity that he showed towards them. Perhaps one of them gives him a new job. It's a genius plan. Um, it also sort of struck me when I was um, thinking about this this week that, that it's also the reason, if you're, you're in the business world, and um, we see it sometimes on the films, those of us who aren't in the business world, I don't know if it really happens, but if you're in the business world and you get the sack, then you do sometimes just get escorted off the premises, don't you? You're not even allowed to go back to your desk. Have you ever thought why? Well, this is why. So you can't pull a clever stunt like this. Just out before you can do it. And the rich owner, well, see his response in verse 8. The rich owner, sort of almost in spite of himself, can't help but be impressed. Because however underhand the manoeuvre has been, he does undoubtedly shrewd. The manager may be a rogue, but he's a clever rogue. And that, I think, is the point. This isn't a parable, um, in case you were wondering. This isn't a parable encouraging us in the pursuit of dishonesty. That's not why Jesus has told it. It's, it's not the dishonesty that Jesus wants us to notice. It's the shrewdness. It's the cleverness. It's the way in which the manager sees what is coming and in the light of what he sees ahead organizes his life accordingly. That's the wisdom. That's the shrewdness. And it's got teaches us many lessons. Um, here's three uh, that I want to suggest to you. 
Uh, they're all to do with giving, funnily enough, it's Giving Sunday. First, give because nothing you have belongs to you anyway. You may not, may not have seen it like this, um, but the truth is we are all, each of us, managers. We're all stewards in the sense that we are all people who have been entrusted with somebody else's staff, specifically God's staff, because everything that we have is his. At this point, you just think, sort of, you kind of want to press pause at this moment, in, in mental pause, and you're thinking, well, is it really? I mean, I mean, I went to work this week. It was my hard work, and, and I get paid at the end of the week for doing my work. So doesn't that, that, make, that makes my wages mine, doesn't it? I've worked for them. I did those chores for my parents, and I have now been given my allowance. So it's my allowance, isn't it? Because I worked for it. Well, here's the question, though. Who gave you the hands to do the chores? Who gave you the mind to be able to do business? Who gave you the back to bend in hard labor? God gave those things. Indeed, God gave you your very life, and as seems pretty obvious, you have to be alive to be able to earn money, don't you? I mean, dead people don't, don't bring in a lot, really. And since God gave you your life, well, then everything that you have, everything that you have earned, comes from him because he gave you the stuff, the life, the mind, the intellect, the imagination, the body that enables you to do everything. All you and I do is just put those things to use. And, and that's why in his famous prayer um, in 1 Chronicles 29, when the people had been able to give uh, to the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, um, David prays in this way. Um, let me read it. David says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. See how David sees it as it is. Everything comes from God, which means that when we give, we're just giving away or giving back to God what was God's in the first place. But, but then again, how, how much to give? How much of all of that? Um, Sarah, in a presentation earlier on, uh, was mentioning the idea of a tithe. Maybe you've come across that idea before. Uh, Old Testament tithe uh, was, was kind of anticipated to be 10%, a tenth of all your produce, a tenth of all, all your possessions. I wonder how you think about that. Tenth. 
of your salary. You've sort of got your mental calculator running at the moment and uh, working out your, your bottom line salary is and taking a tenth of that and you were, sounds quite a lot, 10%, gosh. But I heard someone um, put it in this slightly striking way this week. Um, suppose, suppose this week you got offered a new job. So suppose the wealthiest person in all of Cambridge got in touch with you and said, listen, I'd love you to work for me. Um, in fact, what I'd like you to do is I'd like to put you in charge of all of my wealth. Wealthiest person in Cambridge, probably quite wealthy. All of my wealth, you're in charge of it. L listen, here's the conditions of the job. Um, anything you make through investing my money, anything you make, um, I just want you to give me 10%, and you can keep the other 90% for yourself. Do you fancy that job? Do you think that'd be a good deal? I think you'd have quite a queue of people queuing up for that job, wouldn't you? 90%? He's going to get you invest all of his stuff, and you can keep 90%. He just wants 10. It's funny, isn't it? Flipping it around, and suddenly the idea of a tithe of 10% doesn't seem quite so alarming. So here's the first way that we should learn from the manager in Jesus' parable. Recognizing that when we give, uh, we give knowing that everything we have belongs to somebody else. Uh, and our second reason to give. Give because giving can produce eternal friendships. Um, I do want to be clear that um, I'm sure if you've, if you've been here more than one Sunday, um, I'm, I'm imagining that it is crystal clear to you that this parable does not intend to teach us that you can, by giving, you can earn a place in heaven. Um, I'm, I'm imagining that that probably is, is, is clear to you, but if it's not, let me say it loud and clear. Um, the whole Bible um, makes abundantly obvious that nobody can earn, nobody can buy their way into God's favor. Now, it comes to us by grace. But what Jesus is saying here is that the way that we use our money will always reflect the orientation of our hearts. It will always reveal whether or not we, whether we are or we're not investing in eternity. See, stop, stop and think about it for a moment. We are much more like this manager than you might at first think. Because you and I also are facing a day of reckoning. A day is coming when we will have to give an account of our management. When, as it were, God will want to know what we've done with the life that he gave us and the riches he entrusted to us. And, and rather like the manager in Jesus' parable, there is a very real prospect of loss, isn't there? Of being turned out, of being alone and excluded without any of the things that make life worth living. And, and, and actually, what are those things? What, what are the things that make life worth living? Well, actually, they're not things at all, are they? Um, this past Thursday, um, a few of us were able to be there, this past Thursday um, we had a, a service of thanksgiving here um, for the life of Derek Lewis. 
and it was glorious. 94 years of life, 68 years of marriage to Marlene. How she must be missing that man. Uh, and one of the, the lovely things, there were lots of lovely things, but one of the lovely things was that before, and, uh, before the service started and then afterwards downstairs uh, over refreshments, there were a series of photos uh, up on the, the screens from Derek's life. Now, what do you think those photographs showed? E even if you weren't there, I think you probably know what they showed. But, well, they didn't show all the cars that he'd owned through his life. They, they didn't even show all the different places that he'd lived. They didn't show the, the, the various gadgets that he'd bought during his life and played with. Now, you know that. You know that those photos showed people. They showed Derek and Marlene as newlyweds. They showed Derek and Marlene as new parents. They showed Derek and Marlene with their family, with their friends, through all the years of Derek's wonderful life. Because at the end of his life, that's what mattered. The people that had populated his life, that's what mattered. But, but, but in this parable, Jesus is actually pushing us even further than that to tell us it's not just the people in the here and now that matter, it's also the people in eternity that matter. You see how he puts it in verse 9? Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Can, can you imagine this? Uh, forgive me if the imagery is clumsy, but can you imagine this, that, that you arrive in eternity, and as it were, you're slightly surprised to find a long queue of people waiting to talk to you. And most of them you don't even recognize. And the first one comes forward, and they want to thank you, shake your hand, say they're so, so grateful. And you say, but, but I don't know who you are. And they say, well, you, you gave to Christchurch, didn't you? Well, Christchurch ran a Hope Explored course. And it was on that course that I first heard about Jesus. And I came to faith. And then the next person comes, and it's a woman. And you've never seen her before in your life. And this woman says, oh, thank you so much, because... You were part of the team, weren't you, that decorated my mother's house on that Beeson project? It niggled me for years why people would do that. But years later, I finally plucked up the courage to go to a church, and it was there that I discovered what had led you and those others to decorate my mother's house all those years ago. And suddenly it made sense and I began to follow Christ. And the next man in line, well, now, now him you do kind of recognize, 
or at least he reminds you of somebody, but you can't quite place him, until he explains that you taught him in Sunday club. You gave your time. And he recalls how that was the foundation for a Christian life that persevered. And he's so very grateful for the time you gave. And then next in the line is somebody you've definitely never seen before. Uh, it's a woman from Japan. And she wants to say thank you too because she knows that your giving helped support Margaret Regeira. And it was a conversation with Margaret that led her to first hear anything about Jesus until she put her trust in him. And that queue of people, please don't imagine that it's like a sort of a quick shake of the hand and then off they go. No, no, these people are eternally grateful. So give. Give because nothing you have is yours anyway. Give because giving provides for you eternal friendships. And then third, give. Well, give because the true steward gave everything for friendship with you. It, it, it strikes me, um, as I was thinking about this, it strikes me that it would be possible to hear what I've said so far as if some sort of cold logic kind of drives our giving. You know, that it's a sort of profit and loss thing and we work out, well, this is, this is a good tactic. You know, if I give, then I end up with, with better resources as a result and, and it's just sort of all that sort of cold logic. But Christian giving is so much more than that. You see, the dishonest, the dishonest steward in Jesus' parable, this dishonest manager, gives away his master's riches and does so in order to earn favor for himself. But Jesus Christ gave away his own riches, and he did so in order to earn favor for you. In glory, Jesus really did have everything at his disposal, didn't he? Jesus had a perfect relationship with his Father. Jesus had all the glory and honor and praise of the heavenly realms. Jesus had it all. But he gave it up. That's what Paul points out in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's striking, isn't it? Jesus is the true manager. And Jesus, the true manager, doesn't, doesn't just give up a bit of his wealth. No, Jesus, the true manager, gave up everything. Became nothing, Paul tells us elsewhere. And, and Jesus, the, the, the true manager, didn't just sort of reduce your debt, halve it, slice a bit off it, now, Jesus, the true manager, swiped your debt to one side, removed it entirely, gone. And he didn't even stop there, did he? Having removed your debt, he then gave you the abundant riches of his own righteousness in its place. Spiritual riches beyond our imagining. See, Jesus left glory, came to poverty. Jesus left a throne, came to a cross. Jesus left perfect fellowship with his Father to become forsaken. 
And he did all of those things in order that he could win friends who would be grateful to him for eternity. It's a extraordinary thing, isn't it, to, 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 to realize that the Bible identifies a Christian believer as a friend of Christ. John's gospel records Jesus putting it in exactly this way. Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. See, a Christian believer knows their master's business, and that business is the business of grace, giving us a gift that we could never earn. I said at the outset that, that we worry. Um, we worry that somehow, without money, we'll, we'll have no security. Without money, we won't be able to enjoy life. We're convinced that it's money that gives us both of those. Do you see how in this parable, Jesus, in this part of his teaching, Jesus is completely rewriting the script. He's telling us that if we want to find security and joy, this is the way. Not by hanging on to our wealth, but by giving it away. In generous imitation of the Savior who gave everything for us. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that over the years um, we have made it our, our annual practice here to have a Giving Sunday. Um, I'm grateful for it each year because I know that it, it, it always acts as a sort of, as a checkpoint for me each year to, to just review what I'm doing with my money, to review how I am in my giving. In a sense, it seems to me that Giving Sunday gives us that, that opportunity just, to, just to, to check who's in charge, if I can put it like that. To find out if it's, if it's us that's in charge of our money, or it's our money that is in charge of us. Did you see what Jesus has to say in verse 13? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's, it, it's such a striking way to put it. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't serve both God and money. doesn't say, look, it's a really tricky thing, actually, trying to, trying, trying to serve both God and money. doesn't say, look, really, really, you, you mustn't serve both God and money. doesn't say any of those things. He says you cannot serve both God and money. It cannot be done. In other words, one of these is going to be your master. Either God is going to be your master and you're in charge of your money, or God isn't going to be your master uh, and money will take charge. And the way to check it out, I think, it's always seemed to me the way to check it out, that the way to check out who's in charge, it seems to me, is to give. Because if you can give, then I think that means that you're in charge of your money. 
But if when you, you start to think about giving and you find you can't, then I think that probably means your money must be in charge of you. Why don't we pray?